This is episode 17 with Dr. Terry Walls on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Did you know that approximately 50 million Americans, 20% of the population or one in five people suffer from autoimmune diseases and women are more than likely to be affected than men? Some estimates say that 75% of those affected, some 30 million people, are women. And that's why in today's episode, I have a special guest, Dr. Terry Walls, author of the popular book, The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine. She and I delve deep into her early childhood and the health issues that led to Terry's progressive illness, along with Terry's big aha moment that led to her creating The Walls Protocol. There's just so much in this episode, guys. I really hope you have a pen and paper ready. In today's episode, you'll learn why Dr. Walls prefers ketones derived from medium-chain triglycerides versus dairy products, the problems with cesarean birth, our gut microbiome, and ketosis, Terry's number one tip for optimal health, and so much more. Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. She is the author of The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine, and the cookbook The Walls Protocol Cooking for Life, the revolutionary modern paleo plan to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions. You can learn more about her work from her website, terrywalls.com. She hosts the Walls Protocol Seminar every August where anyone can learn how to implement the protocol with ease and success. Follow her on Facebook at Terry Walls MD and on Twitter at Terry Walls. Well, thank you for joining me today on Ancestral Health Radio, uh, Dr. Walls, and if I may call you Terry. Oh, please. Maybe what you want to do is just kind of open that up with maybe a little bit of your story. Yeah. Um, as you said, I'm a professor of medicine. Uh, let's go back to when I was uh, a youngster. I grew up in northeast Iowa uh, on a family farm. At about age three, I started having uh, bouts of tonsillitis. My family uh, took me in. I got several rounds of penicillin. And then the physician said that I had uh, big tonsils, big adenoids, and I should have my tonsils removed. Uh, so at age four, my tonsils were out, more rounds of penicillin. And so that would have shifted my microbiome and probably uh, contributed to an overgrowth of yeast, most likely candida. Um, and I had my first uh, autoimmune symptoms were probably asthma um, during high school. It bothered uh, my athletic career a bit. I was a basketball player, mm. and that exercise-induced asthma was a problem. Uh, then I went off to medical school, uh, or I went off to college, have a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Um, I uh, then decided that I would get into medicine, uh, and... Um, during that time, I started having uh, episodes of facial pain, either on the right side of the face or the left side of the face, sort of electrical in nature. It seemed to be worse if I was under a lot of stress, uh, didn't get uh, enough sleep, uh, or was being yelled at by my attendants, which uh, often would happen uh, to medical students. 
Uh, and then uh, during residency, it got to be a little bit more of a problem. Um, my first years of practice, I uh, developed a new problem and then I had transient blindness in my left eye. Oh, no. If I was out uh, doing athletic stuff in heat, um, and so I got a big workup, and I said, well, I'll just avoid the heat. That seems to cause a dysfunction in the autonomic blood flow to your retina. Uh, and nobody put the pain and the uh, visual problems together. Uh, 13 years later, uh, my intermittent face pain was, had gotten worse over the years, uh, and I'd had a couple more rounds of antibiotics. I had uh, a pneumonia. Uh, and had a longer bout of antibiotics. Uh, but at, in 2000, I developed weakness in my left leg. Uh, again, back to neurology, big workup, including MRIs in my brain and my spinal cord, which showed lesions at the level of my neck, and a spinal tap, which showed abnormal uh, proteins consistent with relapsing remitting MS. I uh, saw the best people at the University of Iowa, at the Cleveland Clinic, who all agreed that I had uh, relapsing remitting MS. I started on Copaxone, um, which is a daily injection, but within three years, my disease had converted to secondary progressive MS. Uh, and then I took Novantrone for a couple of cycles. That didn't seem to help. I continued to decline. Then I was on Tizabri. That didn't help. Wow. That, by the way, $50,000 a year. Yeah. Uh, that didn't help. Uh, and then I switched to Celsept. And that's when uh, my future was very clear. I was going downhill. Um, I, I, uh, my torso muscles were weak. It was hard to set up. I had severe fatigue. And I started reading the medical literature. Uh, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I'd gotten really upset by seeing that I had a progressive illness. Half of all folks would uh, be disabled within three, uh, 10 years, unable to work due to f fatigue. And a third would have severe gait problems. And my uh, family said, you know, look, this is just getting you upset. You, we need to find you the best people. Let them take care of you. And you got to stop reading this reading. So I did that. Um, and now, you know, five years later when I was, you know, getting progressively worse, it looked like I was going to become better. And it looked like I was going to uh, potentially be demented. And I thought, damn, i got to start reading. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm uh, reading... Uh, a lot of science, a lot of basic science. Uh, first, I'm looking for the uh, latest research involving drugs because I'm a professor of medicine. I believe in drugs. And then it occurs to me, you know, I can't access these drugs. They'll be you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the pipeline. I got to read about things I could access. So it was vitamins, supplements, nutrients. Uh, then I started reading uh, about some stress-reducing practices, uh, exercise, um, and I began to experiment, first really on vitamins and supplements. And, you know, after six months, I thought, I'm wasting my money, <laughs> you know, and I just quit. But I couldn't get out of bed. I was just completely exhausted. Three days later, my wife uh, came back in with my supplement cocktail. So, yo, honey, I think I'll take these again. Uh, and I took them the next day. I could go to, you know, I, got up and I could go to work again. And so I thought, wow, that is a really interesting thing. So two weeks later, same experiment. I stopped my vitamins and my supplements. Mm -hmm. So I said, can't go to work. Uh, and uh, three more days, I uh, start them up again, and I can get back to work. So now I'm exhilarated, like, yes. Yeah, what's doing this? I'm learning something that my physicians aren't telling me. I'm learning based on my own research. And so now I'm really quite willing 
to spend um, some time every night going through PubMed, reading articles and thinking deeply about what it is that I'm doing. Now I'm reading about all sorts of neurodegeneration, neuroimmunology, and I'm relearning my basic science. Um, and I am slowly beginning to experiment, try things, decide some things work, some things don't work. Um, but I, uh, I'm very encouraged. And my goal here is not to recover, because I, I get that progressive MS is a progressive disease, nobody ever recovers, that functions once lost are, are gone. What I'm just trying to do is slow my decline. Right. It's mm. very humble, humble, humble uh, proposition. Before this, there had been no cases or studies of anyone that had miraculously somehow turned their life around with a progressive disorder when, like when you're that? In the when you're in the progressive phase, mm -hmm. if you're if you're relapsing remitting, um, you can have spontaneous improvement. But once you get into that progressive phase, uh, the current teaching is decline is steady. You can maybe you know stop, slow the decline. No one expects uh, recovery. So what did you do next? Well, you know, for the next several years, I you know I'm reading, I'm adding vitamins, supplements, cocktails. You know, I'm going to back up a little bit. Uh, I was diagnosed in 2000. In 2002, my Cleveland Clinic neurologist told me about Lauren Cordane and the paleo diet. So I read his papers and decided that he there is a rationale for what he advocated. So after a lot of prayer and meditation, I went back to eating meat. I gave up all grains, all legumes, all dairy. Huge change in my diet. So I'd been a vegetarian for 20 years eating that stuff. Oh, okay. And... Um, you know, I continued to decline. The next year, I needed the wheelchair and the chemotherapy and then Tizabri. But I stayed with the paleo diet because it felt like I was doing something. Uh, and so, I, you know, I uh, stayed with that. Um, I'm, I'm adding the vitamins and the supplements. In the summer of 2007, um, one of my jobs at the university was uh, being on the Institutional Review Board, where I read uh, and supervised these clinical trials involving humans. And so I told uh, the IRB that I wanted to read studies involving the brain. So I'd gotten steadily more comfortable reading that scientific literature. And that summer, there was a, um, a proposal on electrical stimulation of muscles in acute spinal cord injury. A very interesting little study. So I came home and said, you know, I wonder if anyone's doing this in MS. There were 212 papers. So I read 212 abstracts. And there were a couple papers on cerebral palsy, a couple on remote stroke, nothing on any other disease. And there were, there's a bunch of stuff on athletes. Uh, and so I uh, convinced my physical therapist to give me a test trial. He said, you know, I could probably grow muscles. I just don't know if your brain will be able to talk to them. Huh. So if we grow more muscles on your legs that your brain can't use, it will be much harder for you to walk. Right. So there was a, a risk in all of this. Uh, I also have a lot of neuropathic pain. He said, this is a painful proposition. Um, and you have a lot of neuropathic pain, so you may not be able to tolerate because of the pain. Uh, so he did it. He was right. It hurt. It hurt a lot. Uh, but also had a lot of endorphin release. I felt surprisingly great at the end. Uh, and so I, uh, for several weeks, did the e-stim in the clinic. We showed that I could tolerate it, that I could uh, operate the devices. I got a home device, and I started doing that. At the same time that I'm doing this, I, did, I had discovered the Organization Institute for Functional Medicine, and they had a course on neuroprotection, which I took, 
in the midst of my brain fog. So it was really, it was a lot of hard work. My kids were laughing at Ironically, me. Ironically, right. The course, you know, going uh, over the lectures again and again and again. But, you know, I um, got through that, had a much longer list of vitamins and supplements, a deeper understanding of what I could do. Um, and then uh, I had my next really big aha moment. It's like, you know, I should take this list of 20 nutrients that I'm taking in pill form and figure out where they are in the food supply. So I um, checked with my dietitian colleagues. They couldn't really help me. I went to the library. Uh, they couldn't help me. But the University of Google uh, actually was <laughs> really helpful. Uh, and so I now had a, a list of foods that I wanted to eat. Uh, and I still find the paleo diet, but I have it uh, much more structured. And this eventually I convert into uh, what I now describe as the Wall's diet, and I teach it to the public. Um, but when I had reorganized my paleo diet along these new principles, the magic began. Uh, within the first month, uh, my energy was improving, my mental clarity was improving, uh, my fatigue was certainly declining. Uh, about three months, I began to get up and uh, walk around uh, out of my wheelchair with a cane. That's amazing. And then at six months, no cane. At nine months, I get on my bike for the first time, and probably oh, five, maybe six years, and I bike around the block. I'm crying, my kids are crying, my wife's crying, because, you know, that really is the moment when I understand on a visceral level that I'm getting better. Yeah. I don't know how much better I'm going to get, that my doctors really have no idea about what's possible, and that no one does, um, and that I'm in this new, brave world um, and so, I mean, you work in the clinical field. I mean, I'm sure to all of your colleagues, it it, it must have seemed like a miracle. Oh, like, what 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 could she have possibly done? And it sounds to me like, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but you had taken these slew of supplements, and you decided to take these supplements along with the paleo Ooh. template, and you decided to instead of use supplements, turn those supplements into whole food, right? You know, I, I reorganized my paleo diet to make sure I'm stressing foods that were filled with these nutrients. Mm -hmm. And uh, were these nutrients specific for the brain? Yeah, well, you know, I designed them uh, for the brain, for mitochondria, mm -hmm. and for detoxification. Perfect. Because as I'd gone through my functional medicine training, I realized tons of toxin exposure, probably microbiome screw-up. Oh, yeah. And those were the um, and a lot of evidence for mitochondrial strain. So I'm designing my protocol to make sure that I'm dressing those things when I do my supplement cocktails. And then I'm like, okay, now I gotta get this in the food. And so uh, I had a really pretty structured uh, paleo diet. Look, so a lot of the paleo folks spend a lot of time saying, you can't eat this stuff, eat meat, and don't eat this stuff. And don't really give you a, a very clear guidance um, as to what to stress and maximize. Right. Uh, and so I'm uh, different that way. And, and then I, I'm also, different in that uh, I, you know, I, I've said that these, and now there are 36 nutrients that I'm tracking so that are really important. And then I, you know, I create these menus, these recipes, and these clinical trials, and we test. When people eat this way, and they follow what I tell them to eat, are they hitting those 36 nutrients or not? Mm, uh, okay. And uh, I'm really the only author in the health and wellness space that also does clinical nutrition research to say, and and in clinical trials, this is what people eat, and this is what we can measure. Right. So you're actually taking that functional medicine, and you're 
actually putting clinical trials behind it, right? So you're you're finding yeah, I'm, that I'm, we're testing that. You know, in a way, we have another trial going on right now um, that we're in the midst of recruiting for uh, early uh, in our intervention phase to see how it's all going to turn out. But um, the Emma Society is uh, been very excited by the amount of, uh, uh, of uh, interest uh, from the public and the MS community that who want to be part of this trial because, you know, the, the uh, word is out on the street that diet really does matter. Absolutely. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's very gratifying to see how much that has changed in the uh, eight years I've been talking about uh, diet as a uh, foundational piece to health and vitality. Right. And it's not just diet, right? I mean, if, if we're really talking about it, it's, it's more of a, a species-specific diet, if anything, it, you right? Know, it, it, uh, it's our, our, our entire environment. Mm-hmm. You see, our DNA interacts continuously with every aspect of my environment and fine-tunes my response to that environment uh, to uh, better prepare me for reproduc- reproductive success uh, and survival in the environment to which I'm faced. So as our environment gets further and further from what our species, you know, had for five million, six million, and then you know two million as a genus, and five hundred thousand, two hundred thousand as our species, the further we get from all of that, the harder it is for our chemistry of life uh, to work optimally, and the harder it is for our microbiome to work optimally for us. So we, we get into trouble for um, all sorts of ways. Right. So the, the, um, the more we can shift uh, every aspect of our environment into a habitat that is a little more closely aligned to uh, a free living human that would have been um, out of the savanna, you know, 20,000 years ago. Right, and, that, and that's why it's important also for people to really understand where they come from, right? understand their their lineage their ancestry and kind yeah, of take that know, into account correct correct yeah, actually, and actually I do talk about that you know when I, in my uh, dietary program I've got uh, various entry points uh, an easy beginning diet to more advanced uh, ketogenic diets or elimination diets mm. uh, and I tell people you'll think about where your ancestors came from because there's some genetic information there that would tell you um, was your ancestry likely ketogenic for two months out of the year or 10 months out of the year? And that might give you a little more clue as to how successful you would be in ketosis. Uh, my friends who you know, are equatorial, I tell them, well, you know, you, you might do okay in ketosis, but I think that my uh, northern European genetics would probably be more favorable towards ketosis than your equatorial genes. You might do well for a couple months out of the year uh, during a dry season, but I, I'd be uh, mindful that uh, a continuous ketosis may not be as well tolerated uh, for you. Yeah, and that's that's something myself that I'm experimenting with too. So my father, he passed away a year ago from um, Parkinson's disease. And so I have a family history of neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, my past family, on my mother's side, four out of six children passed away from drug and health-related illnesses. And so for me, taking care of myself and, and taking a real objective look at my health and how I can improve it has been a huge, huge element for me going forward yeah. in what I do. So um, hearing ketogenic, low-fat, 
uh, or high fat, rather low carb, or um, just I'm a huge fan of the elimination diet as well, too, you know, Mm -hmm. just to customize the diet to make sure that what you're working with is specific to you. Um, Maybe we want to move on. I I heard that you were talking about the microbiome and that and when you were talking about tonsillitis, that was uh, very familiar and reminiscent Mm -hmm. of my past. That was my I had the same thing. I would get it every year. I would get um, strep throat every year specifically. Yeah. And then I would have to go on a round of antibiotics. And I think that destroyed my microbiome. So taking yeah. care of my gut has been a huge, again, a huge key to making sure that everything is, is consistent within me. So maybe we'll you know, talk about that. Yeah. Let, let's sort of uh, talk about that. You know, I have this great slide in one of the power uh, uh, PowerPoint talks that I give. When I review uh, the history of life in our planet, from uh, when we first began to have uh, bacterial life, uh, photosynthesis, then we had the oxygen crisis, uh, and about a billion and a half years ago, we had our mitochondria, um, which were really forerunners of ancient bacteria, the bigger bacteria engulfed. I find that fascinating. And that, that was the beginning of uh, multicellular organisms and animals, um, and then mammals, you know, about 500 million years ago. Um, and then we get into primates, uh, and our ancestors uh, pull away from uh, the primate line about six million years ago. And as I said, you know, about five hundred thousand years ago, uh, we became uh, Homo sapiens. But what I want to take everyone back to is our guts brought with them the bacteria that were in the sea, and that microbiome has uh, these bacteria have divided every 20 minutes approximately. And so they've been responding to our environment very quickly, uh, shifting. Uh, and as we had genetic mutations, because you know, our, when we went through the uh, uh, human uh, DNA sequencing, we thought we'd have about 100,000 genes because we have that many proteins that we have to make. But we only have about 23,000 genes. Like, where the hell did the other 75,000 go? <laughs> it was a huge mystery. Well, we now know from uh, the work by Randy Hurdle, who was the first pioneer that shows us how the environment begins to turn genes on and off. Uh, and, we, and one of the things we've realized now is we have 23,000 genes. The uh, virus is living in our gut. The bacteria uh, uh, and yeast living in our gut um, have collectively over 9 million genes. And so if we had a mutation that um, made gene X not work anymore, but it was coded by our bacteria and our viruses, so we could still make that protein uh, by our bacteria and get it diffused into our bloodstream, we had reproductive success. Mm. At that moment, that human gene had been exported to our gut bacteria. And so... Our mothers, at least in the mammal line, have been transmitting this very powerful network of uh, genes from our gut bacteria, mother to child, through uh, as the child's born through the birth canal. What we're experiencing now is this huge die-off of our microbiome. The viruses, the bacteria, the yeast that we have carried from the oceans when we first became a multicellular organism, you know, a billion and a half years ago. As we're, and our health declines as we lose this diversity. 
So our liver will filter out the bad chemistry that, that our gut microbiome makes and let the good stuff stay in our bloodstream. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the genes are gone, that we aren't making these proteins properly, our health declines. Right. Uh, and so you know, when we change what we're eating, uh, and we have radically, uh, you know, in the 1700s, uh, we discovered how to make sugar, uh, and it became uh, a addictive compound uh, that has steadily increased in consumption uh, to now over 200 pounds uh, per person per year. And the white flour is over 130 pounds per person uh, per year. So uh, what that has done is the vegetable matter, you know, is steadily uh, falling. It's less than one and a half serenes per day on average. And the fiber intake uh, in our traditional society is 100 to 150 grams per day. Mm-hmm. It's now uh, 15 grams per day. So we're starving uh, the bacteria that we rely on to run our chemistry of life. And then we give them poisons, the antibiotics, and we give them poisons in the pesticides in our food and the Roundup in the food. The glyphosate. Mm-hmm. The glyphosate. Uh, and that's a very potent antibiotic that's damaging the microbiome of our livestock and the microbiome of us. Um, and big, big health consequences. Right. So I, I spend uh, a lot of time talking about the need to make sure we have microbial accessible carbohydrates, that if you're going to do ketogenic, as you know, I'm very fond of ketogenic diets, but people still need to have enough carbohydrates, uh, resistant starch in their diet to feed their microbial friends. So I'm, uh, instead of doing a dairy-based ketogenic diet, I'm very, very keen on the medium-chain triglyceride-based uh, ketogenic diet, because I'll let you have uh, more like 60 grams of carbs as opposed to less than 20. And so where, where do the medium chain triglycerides come from? Well, the, uh, the version that I, that I like that tastes good to me is coconut oil uh, and coconut milk, uh, coconut products. So uh, I'll do that. Um, people ask about the uh, uh, red palm oil, which is also medium chain triglyceride. I, I don't use that for um, environmental reasons because of the deforestation that uh, That's occurs. the same reason I don't use it either. So, yeah, you know, we just can't use it. So I'd much rather use coconut. Um, I, I do use some butter. Uh, the, the other thing I do is, uh, you know, eat once a day or eat every other day or sometimes. So you, so you are a fan of fasting or intermittent fasting? and Intermittent fasting, yeah. You know, I, and, you know, the folks um, that in the APOE4 group, also very worried about neurodegeneration and early dementias, um, they don't want to use coconut oil. They don't want to use uh, the uh, saturated fats. They get their uh, ketogenic numbers doing intermittent feeding. So they'll go 24, 48 hours uh, between meals. They use a lot of uh, olive oil. So I was like, well, I was sort of skeptical about can you really get into ketosis that way? So I you know, came back home and tried it, and uh, you can. So, I mean, there are a variety of ways for us to get into ketosis. Um, I prefer to have a way that lets you have more uh, 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 resistant starch uh, and fiber in the diet so you can keep a healthy microbiome. Okay. And you know what? Let's let's back it up for a few people just in case they are unaware if they have been hiding under a rock what the ketogenic diet exactly is mm-hmm. uh, versus what most people today on the SAD diet, what, what most people here in at least Western cultures, how they eat. What, sure. what does that look like? 
So a standard American diet is probably 250 grams of carbohydrate. As I said, uh, we're a high sugar diet, high white flour diet. We'll have maybe one and a half servings of vegetables a day, and a total of uh, 13, 15 grams of carbohydrates or of fiber. Um, and we recommend a low-fat diet under 30% fat uh, that, in terms of the uh, federal guidelines. Which is, we, which by the way, I believe they have now turned on the on their head, right? The guidelines well, for fat is now changing? Well, they, they are backing off, and fat uh, is not the evil that it once was, or is certainly less evil. So the, the ketogenic diet uh, was discovered uh, in the early 1900s, I believe about 1919, uh, in Mayo Clinic. Uh, kids who had seizures, uh, they made the observation, if they put them on, at that time it was called the water diet, because they starved the kids, seizures would stop. Uh, and if there were no anti-seizure meds, and so this was the only treatment. The Latin came along, and that was way easier than being starved. And so uh, that was used. Then uh, in the 1960s, there's a subset of kids who are still seizing, you know, many, many seizures every day on multiple uh, two, three, four anti-seizure meds, uh, kids having uh, a lot of very serious health problems. And they went back to these ketogenic diets and could stop the seizures. Uh, and so there was greater interest in adding a ketogenic diet uh, for these kids. Uh, and now uh, uh, these diets were dairy-based on cream, uh, butter, eggs, 90% fat. Um, and they would have to uh, uh, work with the pediatrician uh, and the uh, dietitians to keep the kids from losing weight and try and make it nutritionally sound. You have to use a lot of supplements when you have that kind of very, very high-fat diet. Um, and that's a very tough diet because that's only 20 grams of carbs. That's like three cups of salad greens. Right. So that's it's pretty tough to have enough fiber for your gut that way. So uh, the next big innovation from my point of view was the recognition that medium-chain triglycerides generate more ketones than butter and cream. And so, uh, plus I think they taste really good. So now instead of being able to have only 20 grams of carbs, I can probably get by 60, sometimes even 80 grams of carbs. And that'll depend on the person's genes and the microbiome that they've got growing at that time. But, uh, it, and so in, in my plans, I uh, tell people to do um, the medium chain triglyceride version, use coconut oil. If you don't tolerate coconut oil, then I tell people, uh, don't tr- don't be in ketosis. I'd rather you just do low glycemic index, olive oil, mm. eat once a day, or if you can, every other day, and get into your uh, ketosis that way. Is there a reason why you would choose uh, getting your ketone bodies uh, or ketones exogenously, you know, from from medium tri- tra- chain triglycerides rather than from dairy? Is what is yes, the biggest yes. difference between the two? You get more per gram. And it allows you to tolerate more carbohydrate. So you have more uh, carbs that you can feed your microbes and you can have a healthier microbiome. Okay. If you have only 20 grams of carbs, the likelihood of microbiome disruption is great. And the likelihood of altered hormonal balance 
is increased. Yeah. I also have to make the, uh, remind people that when we're doing ketogenic diets, we're shifting the signaling to our cells that this is not the time to reproduce, it's the time to repair. So if you're wanting to be a mom or a dad, do not, don't think you're going to be fertile when you're in ketosis because you've shifted the signaling uh, and your uh, mammalian-targeted rampomycin and your insulin levels are telling your body you won't have the stores to reproduce, so it's making them subtle, subtle shifts. It's going to make it more difficult. Not impossible, so I wouldn't count on it for birth control, but you'll make it more difficult. I don't want you to waste $20,000 going to a fertility clinic if you're going to be in ketosis. With, with the ketogenic diet, uh, for, for myself, I like to practice something called metabolic flexibility. So once I follow uh, John Kiefer's work, and once every 10 days I, I like to break my ketogenic diet with um, eating some type of fermented bread. Like I, I'll, I'll eat bread, you know, and I will eat it actually, you know, some uh, sourdough bread or mm -hmm. some other ancient grain bread that I've made or fermented here in my own house. So the idea behind that for me is that I'm creating and I'm having Dr. John Dulyard on after afterwards, and mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about eating wheat. And the idea is that we're creating a, a small hormetic response in our body so that we can actually still benefit and use both wheat and dairy in a beneficial way without totally destroying our insides or well, wrecking habit on our gut. You know, uh, that, that will depend uh, on the individual. Let's say you brought me to your house and you did that to me. And I had some yummy bread, which I do love, and uh, dairy, which I do love. Um, within 6 to 48 hours, my uh, neuropathic pain would turn on my face. Uh, it would start out with a little discomfort, and then it would grow to uh, quite severe, big electrical jolts of pain. I'd be, you'd see these little spasms come. Uh, and then I'd get to the point where I couldn't talk, I couldn't really swallow, I'd be drooling. Uh, light uh, puffs of air would trigger the pain. Sound would trigger the pain. If you touch me, it triggers the pain. Uh, then I get to the point where I really can't probably talk anymore because talking triggers the pain. And then I can get to the point where I can't stand and walk because if I'm walking and the pain triggers, I can't maintain muscle tone to stand. So it used to take uh, about, you know, a couple days to get into that kind of extreme level of dysfunction. Uh, that could now happen to me uh, in a couple of hours. Oh, wow. So I carry prednisone with me. So if somehow I, I'm out because I'm eating away from home, People may not appreciate just how sensitive I am. Right. Uh, and so I can accidentally get exposed and, you know, I feel the triggers uh, of pain. Uh, and then I'll start taking a uh, really high dose of uh, prednisone. And occasionally I'll still have to go in and get solumedrol to turn it off, which is really high dose steroids. But that'll turn it off. Um, and the other thing that's happening now is so I'll get the uh, zings of pain and I may get another neurologic symptom. Oh, no. uh, a couple of years ago, the last time uh, I had a really bad uh, episode of pain, I had weakness in my right hand that was, you know, I'm right hand dominant. So this was terribly inconvenient. I couldn't type. And it took a couple of weeks to, to get it all back. So, you know, it will depend uh, if you've got somebody who has severe sensitivity, uh, an aggressive immune response, and they already have bad, you know, a night of trouble. 
uh, they won't tolerate it. But I, I, I do agree with you that my mitochondria can burn fat, which they do very well. And I do that uh, a lot during the winter. Um, but you know, they'll also burn protein. They'll also uh, burn carbs. And the reason we could survive in so many diverse environments in uh, our biosphere is that we have that, that flexibility in our mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that is helpful to have uh, up, you know, times when they, they're going to have to burn amino acids because I'm not eating carbs, I'm not eating fat, or that they're going to have to burn carbs, uh, complex carbs, you know, not the simple carbs, uh, but I want them to burn carbs, uh, and that would be good. And, and in that line, although I know it's not really tied into mitochondria, I, I really do like the um, idea of hormesis. So I uh, do temperature hormesis. So I like to either sit in ice water mm -hmm. and read books for pleasure, or I sit in my pool. So I have a pool that I, I never heat. So right now it's about 60 degrees. Uh, so I get in that. Nobody else wants to get in my pool, and I'll swim. Sure. Uh, and when I'm done, I just sit in there to my neck, and you know I just get cold. And then I'm, when I'm shivering, like okay, now it's time to get out. And you know that's the best sleeping I have after that. Uh, and I also like to do saunas to 160 degrees. Perfect. I was just so, going to ask you whether or not so, you liked infrared or or any light yeah, therapy infrared. or anything like that. Okay. So so I want to be sure that I, I, I'm. I am giving myself, you know, that uh, variation, that tolerance. Um, you know, it's like exercise. I want my exercise to include some high-intensity interval work uh, as well as a stretching balance. So that, so you, you want to have um, a wide set of uh, environments that you have to deal with. You know, I'm thinking about the microbiome still, and uh, something that you said earlier really I think is important for people to understand too, is that uh, you said that it's also important that when a baby is born, that uh, it enters the birth canal and it receives different bacteria. And now, modern times, there's more and more women are having cesarean or C-sections, oh, correct? Yeah. And so they're not so, even receiving some of the beneficial bacteria that they would be getting from their mother in that way. So, you know, my son was born vaginally. My daughter had had uh, severe preeclampsia, uh, placental abruption, cataclysmic birth. Uh, and so she had a stat C-section to save my life and her life. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, uh, the, she also had a lot of colic uh, and some GI issues. Uh, and kids who are born via C-section have much higher rates of health problems, autoimmune issues, uh, mental health issues, uh, higher rates of obesity, diabetes, um, uh, more severe response to stress and higher you know, cortisol and stress hormone levels. And there are some uh, hospitals that are doing this radical thing of getting the vaginal secretions and swabbing them all over the baby and in the baby's uh, mouth oh. and having the mom uh, put uh, vaginal secretions on the uh, nipples uh, and give the baby some um, probiotics. Interesting. I had never heard of that. That's, that's great to know. I, I did not know that, that they were actually doing that, so that's fantastic. And with, with your protocol exactly um, and going uh, very, very low-carb, and high fat, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. there can be some issues with the thyroid. Is that correct? Well, um, so what, if you do the ketogenic diet, you uh, can have issues with the thyroid. You can have issues with your sex hormones. You can create uh, hormonal stress. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, you, you do want to pay attention to that. 
Is there anything um, that you do to mitigate that or, or do you take supplements or herbs or do you follow that up with another whole food type regime? So uh, I would say I, I'm really quite confident that my version uh, with the medium chain triglyceride diet is the least stressful of all. Mm. The dairy-based ketogenic diet is very stressful long-term. The medium chain triglyceride diet, much less so. Although still, if you're trying to get pregnant, I'd much rather you be, do a low glycemic index diet. Um, uh, and it'll be much easier for you to uh, conceive. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, conversation people ask me about. Because uh, uh, I'm very fond of the cabbage family. Mm-hmm. And it's concerned that that's a um, will uh, cause uh, difficulty with absorbing the iodine. Um, oh, okay. I counterbalance that by just adding some seaweed into the diet that's exactly and asking people to uh, if they if they're on any kind of thyroid medicine, you gotta work with your treating physician uh, to have them monitor your thyroid and adjust the amount of seaweed that you're taking so you're not overshooting. And uh, it's, you want to be careful to not take excessive amounts of uh, iodine, but um, you know, a thousand micrograms or one milligram per day uh, certainly seems to be very well tolerated. Well, you know what? Now I'm interested. Okay, can I run by? Okay, can I give you a typical day of what I eat and just get your personal opinion on it? Sure. Okay, so I usually um, I practice intermittent fasting, and during the first part of my day, I don't eat anything other than have what I'm showing you right now, which is my quote-unquote fatty coffee. So in there, okay. it will have two tablespoons of coconut fat, one tablespoon of butter, have some raw cacao, and some cinnamon, some Ceylon cinnamon in there. Yeah, and it I'll sounds blend good. It. Yeah, it's delicious. And I have that pretty much every morning, and that lasts me until maybe 1 to 2, and I stop eating at like 8 p.m. So that lasts a good 16 to 18 hours for me. And then I usually break my fast, and I break my fast with... Uh, just a small side of fermented foods, regardless of whatever it is. It could be kimchi, sauerkraut, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I follow that up with uh, at least one cup of bone broth, and I'll add the dulse or seaweed into the bone broth. And I'll throw that in there, and it tastes delicious. I absolutely love it. And and then after that, I'll, I'll wait a few hours, and I will have my first meal. And I only eat two meals, and I'll have some snacks, maybe some macadamia nuts in there. But I will then have my first meal, which is a giant rainbow colored salad, which is more than more, almost always. I love Greek salads. I mean, I'll switch it up from time to time. I I know it's important that I, I, I change and change things in and out of my diet, but I love the Greek salad. That's my go-to and I'll throw some sardines on top of that. Yeah. You know, that, that's a great day that you've described. Uh, the other advice I like to give folks is, uh, I have a personal goal of 200 different plant species in a year. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there are several uh, um, studies that have looked at traditional uh, hunter gatherers, yeah, and they have um, uh, a great deal of seasonal variation uh, throughout the year what they're eating. Huge biodiversity. Yeah, and so when, when I started doing that, I kept a little spreadsheet, and I realized, like, damn, I gotta <laughs> do better. I'm gonna have a hard time getting to my 200. Uh, yeah, you're like, I species. eat 30 different types of plants. <laughs> So uh, that got me much more into teas and spices. Mm-hmm. And then if I see a new vegetable or mushroom or you know, something new at the store, I'm like, I got to get it. I got to bring it home and try that. So I have to <laughs> yeah. add it to my list. Uh, and so that, you know, I, I give people the structure of the, of the groups I want you to uh, include. Mm-hmm. But then I also give this other advice of 
have a personal goal of uh, finding 200 different plants that you're going to consume in the year. And it's fine to have this be a seasonal shift. So I want you to eat with the seasons. Mm -hmm. Try out new spices, uh, new uh, teas, because our ancestors saw that these foods are the super, the, the original superfoods. They were so helpful to the clans that they were incorporated into their culinary traditions for their health benefits. Therefore, use spices, try out spices from new uh, cultures, use spice blends, um, and uh, try new teas, new herbal blends, new, uh, uh, keep experimenting. And then if you have access to dirt and sunshine, grow some of these spices uh, in your yards. Then, then you can just wildly add them to your salads and your cooking, and it's so much fun. And I'm a huge proponent of foraging. Um, yes. Uh, wild crafting, um, getting out in nature, and actually uh, basically getting everything that you need just by going outside. That's one of my favorite things. And um, right now I have a, a boon of golden chanterelle mushrooms that I just foraged from the Santa Cruz oh, Mountains. Great. which gorgeous I, I found a new spot but and, and just to just to follow that last part up um the last meal that i have usually has one to two cups of cruciferous vegetables and one to mm -hmm. two cups of dark leafy greens and a palm full size of some sort of protein wild protein whether that be from wild game fish or some other type of pastured domesticated animal yeah yeah no that's perfect the um this is a nice segue into some interesting work coming out of Japan about the health benefits of just going to the forest. Mm, Shinrin Yoku? Oh, forest, yeah, forest bathing. Uh, and uh, again, follow some interesting studies that our children with attention deficit disorder mm -hmm. do far better if we can get them outside, gardening, hiking, camping. I'm trying to get my forest. girlfriend to start a, a forest kindergarten here in the Bay. That's exactly one of our big goals is trying to start that up here so that we can get more children out there and less of what they call nature deficit disorder, right? I think, I think that's yeah. what they're calling it. So, Yeah, I think that's very true. What are some practical tips also that, that you might want to give to the audience if they're looking and they have well, some, of, some autoimmune issues? What are some things that they could take away now? So, you know, it depends on where you're at. Uh, and I'm going to uh, have the comments go out to the standard American diet person. So the first thing is exclude the foods that are most likely to cause this ex uh, excessive, inappropriate inflammation. So that's taking out the dairy, uh, taking out uh, the gluten grains, and ramping up the vegetables. Uh, so get rid of the excluded foods, uh, and then add uh, cruciferous, that's the cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family vegetables, Add uh, the green leafy stuff. The greener the leaf, the better it is, and have variety. Uh, cooked is good. Raw is good. Uh, if you're going to cook it, the greens will be bitter, so then add saturated fat, such as bacon fat or coconut oil or ghee. That'll bring that uh, bitterness down. It still seems bitter. Add a little uh, lemon juice. Uh, that'll bring the pH down. And you know, you'll be surprised that your kids may say, Actually, this is our favorite vegetable. Uh, mm -hmm. So my kid's favorite vegetable uh, is cooked greens and bacon. Uh, and then uh, I'm into deep colors, so carrots, beets, uh, berries, uh, protein uh, of your choice. I do have a program uh, that works for vegetarians and vegans because I do recognize that we have oh, um, nice. many folks who are uh, vegetarian, vegan for deep spiritual beliefs. And uh, so I wanted to give them guidance how to do that more safely. 
Um, and then I talked to the paleo eaters that if you eat only meat, you're going to uh, overstimulate the mammalian target of rapamycin, insulin-like uh, growth hormone, and a number of other growth hormones that increase your rates of cancer. Mm-hmm. So my, I'd much rather eat lots of vegetables and sufficient meat so you don't have that risk. I love that. That's uh, that's perfect advice. And you know what? I didn't know I did not know that you had a vegan vegetarian plan as well, too. You know, and I get a little frustrated with my paleo friends uh, and my ketogenic friends who, who I'm sure have, have the strong, strong feeling that their point of view is the only one that's healthy. Just like you know what? As as soon as you begin to think you have the corner on the truth, right? You are now completely wrong. Yep. Uh, that there we've had a lot of flexibility in our uh, chemistry, there are a lot of ways to feed us, and we just need to keep helping people do it uh, more and more effectively. So you can do it as a ketogenic eater, a paleo eater, or a vegan vegetarian eater. And if you're not careful, you can still get yourself quite ill in any of those domains. Uh, so I have to give people some guidance uh, how to do it more safely, how to optimize it, and that um, you can do achieve good health in any of those plans if done correctly. That's beautiful. And just to wrap things up, maybe we'll end with this. If you could just yeah. give one piece of advice to our audience for better health, what would that be? You have to cook at home. You know, people uh, say that they can't afford to eat the wall stack, they can't afford to eat for health. And uh, the the advantage I had for several years, I worked at the VA, uh, and we taught in the lifestyle, a therapeutic lifestyle clinic, the concepts that I write about in my book. We taught these to people who had no money, who were living on disability, uh, money was very tight. We gave them cooking classes. We uh, talked to them about reducing food waste, about foraging, hunting, fishing. And they, so they could do this without increasing their monetary uh, food budget. They could do this and save money. So, but we have, but to do it, you have to cook at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of folks didn't do that. So we had cooking classes uh, and got them learning how to cook. Uh, okay. And, as they began to cook at home, they figured this out, and they figured out how to improve the quality of their foods that they were getting. Uh, and we could see pain melting away, blood sugars normalizing, blood pressures normalizing, uh, mood improving, cognition improving, uh, symptoms going down, the prescription list getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and people would use it in front of us. Yeah. But the most important thing you have to do is cook at home. If you have kids, your kids' uh, grades will go up, their social skills will go up, their confidence will go up, their academic performance will go up. And then as they become young adults, because they've learned how to cook, uh, you've been modeling eating at home and these family interactions, they'll be much more likely to uh, be able to cook at home themselves, have uh, much greater health, uh, a much lower cost to their health, um, at lower cost to their food budget, uh, and hopefully carry on these culinary traditions with their children and grandchildren as well. It's, it's, that's it. Uh, the single most important uh, thing that we teach is we have to begin eating at home together as a family. And that's amazing. I feel like, uh, you know, just to end it, but uh, I feel like that's something that was so... I grew up with my grandmother. I was raised by my grandmother, and my grandmother, that was her generation. She, I felt like her generation was how she showed her appreciation and her love for her family was through her cooking. 
And so yeah. that's that's what I got from my grandmother more than anything. And um, I'm glad that that power of tradition of cooking really stuck with me. And I think that it's it's a shame. You know, it's a shame that today's youth, you know, it's cooking is kind of a thing of the past when convenience is now the first in line. So that's one of the things we really try to eschew around here on Ancestral Health Radio yeah. is really kind of take the path less traveled and it, it is worth all well, the difference. You know, with the social media, uh, more and more people are talking about food, more people are talking about cooking. Um, and, and so I've seen a, a big shift that's happened in the last eight years. Uh, you know, and I find it, so I, I look at social media and I can be horrified by some of the terrible things that are happening because uh, you can make change happen much more quickly uh, in uh, very hate-filled, angry ways. We can also create much more um, uh, rapid change for loving, wonderful health building and health reclaiming ways. Uh, and what I'm seeing is when I'm talking about these concepts, my physician colleagues are far more willing to embrace me as brilliant visionary. This is what we all need to be doing. And the public is much more willing to say, I don't want drugs. I think there's another way. And I, and I want to try that. So I'm very optimistic. I think this is, there is tremendous opportunity for all sorts of professionals to get out there uh, to uh, make this message, craft the following, and help support people in this journey. Uh, and this this new brand of health professionals will replace the physicians. Absolutely. Uh, because uh, there are many physicians who um, are just are not talking about this. Yeah. There are some of us who are. In, mm -hmm. uh, in the medical school, there are more uh, young kids who are wanting to learn how to do this uh, and take this path. So it's growing. I think it's an exciting time. It's a great time to be a doc. It's a great time to be uh, teaching the young medical students about this. Uh, and it's uh, pretty fun to watch this changing conversation nationally and internationally because you know the government can't improve our health. Our health insurance companies can't improve our health. Our employers can't improve our health. Uh, the only one who can do this are we ourselves because we decide what it is we're going to eat. We know our what we're family putting in our can, mouth. Yep. can create the environment so it's easier for me to put the right things in or harder, but I'm the one who's going to put the food in my mouth. And so my recovery depends on me. And I think more and more of us are understanding that and are sharing that experience and that knowledge with the world. And just having greater success in general, I believe. Yeah, you know, um, in our trials, uh, one of the things, um, you know, when I present our data, the public health folks will tell you that if they can get someone to increase their vegetable intake by one serving a day at the end of 12 months, that's like a home run to them. In my data, we went from one and a half servings to eight and a half servings. Wow. And the reason we're so successful is, one, you know, we've got people who are highly motivated. We had this beautiful run-in. But people had to experience symptom reduction. If they hadn't experienced symptom reduction, they would have gone back to these seductive, addicting foods they were eating before. Yeah. But because they had symptom reduction, they had experienced a transformation of their life, and they were willing to give up the foods that they were addicted to. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's <clears throat> funny because um, I hate sardines. <laughs> I hate sardines, but I will eat them because I know how good they are for me. Like for, for me personally, I eat a lot of things that they may not be the tastiest food for me. I mean, personally, of course, I'd probably much rather go munch on a pizza somewhere 
because it's just it, it sends those right signals. But for me, knowing my past, knowing my history and how I feel when I eat these foods, it makes mm -hmm. all the difference in the world. So, Terry, I, I super appreciate your time today. And if there's anything that I can do to help you in the future, uh, please let me know. I, I'm at your disposal. Um I will. I want to make sure I've sent you all of my links, uh, so you can put that in your show notes. Uh -huh. uh, I'll, I'll send you some links uh, to some uh, research studies that we're involved in as well, so you can let people know uh, who may have MS or Parkinson's would like to have them participate in these online surveys for us. Well, that's very, very important to me. Obviously, the Parkinson's one is very near and dear to my heart. So, again, anything that I can do to help, especially in re this regards, I'm all about it. So, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. Yeah.